uh, I want to talk to us today about discouragement. Uh, discouragement that perhaps might also be accompanied by distress. Um, discouragement, uh, especially not just in life in general, but discouragement when we are engaged in gospel ministry. As Elijah was here all throughout his life, and as all of you here are here in Upper Darby in Delaware County in 69th Street, as, as I uh, went through your prayer requests on your inside your inside your bulletin, a lot of it deals with the, the, the ministry, the gospel ministry that you are engaged in day by day, week to week on 69th Street. I want to talk to us about when we experiment uh, experience discouragement in that uh, in that field, in that ministry. Uh, discouragement perhaps when you might feel so discouraged and where it feels like the walls are all starting to close in. Um, and perhaps you might have a moment of weakness and might feel like giving up. Today, uh, we come to one of the quintessential passages where someone experiences that. George, uh, as you pointedly uh, mentioned in your prayer, Elijah was this great prophet. And what makes chapter 19 so difficult is that all in all of Elijah's accounts in, uh, in the book of Kings, he, he's a great man of God, almost like a superman, impenetrable, um, you know, strength, uh, unimaginable strength, unimaginable faith unimaginable faithfulness to God. And yet here in chapter 19, he seems to give up. Not only that, he seems to complain and pout, if I could use that word. He seems to be very now focused on himself. Um, so, so how do we make sense of this? What was he doing? And how can we learn from this? So I want to talk to us about discouragement. Uh, we'll talk about this passage in three main points. First, we'll give some background, some setup, what has happened up to this point. Then we will talk about how God showed Elijah compassion, but then also how God shows Elijah his strength. So first the setup, then God's compassion, then God's strength. First, the setup. Uh, as I mentioned before we read the passage, by this time in Elijah's life, uh, he's done many, many great things for God. This was a time in Israel's history. Uh, Elijah's ministry was mostly in that northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, Israel at that time had a very evil king, probably the most evil king uh, in all of scripture, King Ahab, evil queen, Queen Jezebel. Um, all of the country was going, um, you know, they had gone away from God. Um, and Elijah uh, actually sends God's judgment upon that nation, famine. But in the midst of that famine, Elijah also does these great miracles. First, the widow uh, providing food and nourishment for the widow. Uh, and then, of course, we talked about that, uh, that great uh, contest on top of Mount Carmel where Elijah uh, goads. A, a word today would be he trolls, right? He really trolls 
the prophets of Baal. You make your altar, I'll make my altar. You do whatever, dance and sing and do whatever to your God, Baal, and I will not only pray to my God, I'm going to dampen my altar, like today's rain, like he, he, he really made it wet. And then whichever God sets the altar on fire, that's the real God. He was trolling the, 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 the prophets of Baal. And guess what? Elijah won. God proved himself when he sent fire down from heaven and consumed Elijah's uh, uh, sacrifice. Up to this point in Elijah's life, he's done many great things for God. And yet, in chapter 19, in the first two verses, we read of a man, of a nationwide manhunt against Elijah. All right. Uh, let me read the first two verses again. Then Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done on top of Mount Carmel and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as one of the, as the life of one of them, meaning the prophets that Elijah had uh, slaughtered by tomorrow about this time. Uh, the words that Jezebel uses in, in verse 2 are, are very, uh, they are covenantal words. Uh, in the ancient Near East, in that culture of that time, uh, if you made a promise, uh, if you made a, a, a very firm promise, a, a covenant, you might say, uh, you would use that word. So you would use that phrase. So let the gods do to me and more also if dot, 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 dot. And then therein, you know, following would be your promise or your covenant. Jezebel basically makes a covenant to kill Elijah by tomorrow. When Jezebel does this, she is not just some random anonymous person on Twitter. She's not someone who just leaves a nasty comment on your Facebook. She's the queen. And she's the queen doing this with uh, encouragement or with uh, sanction by the king. And the text is very clear in verse 3. When Elijah saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And he ran as far, the Bible tell, tells us, as far as Beersheba. Uh, remember in the previous chapter, Elijah was on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is in the northern kingdom in a place called uh, Jezreel. Beersheba is the furthest town on the south in the kingdom of Judah. So Elisha is making a straight way from north, from Mount Carmel, all the way as far as he can get from Ahab and Jezebel uh, down to Beersheba, down in the south, the southernmost city, uh, basically in the 12 tribes before you get into the wilderness, nowhere. Um, I don't know if you recall uh, a couple months ago, uh, it might have been maybe a year ago, there was the case of Gabby Petito and her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, where Gabby went missing. And, uh, and then Brian, who denied all wrongdoing, he went missing for a couple days. Every night on the news, you turn on the news and you saw what? Where is Brian Laundrie? Where is Brian Laundrie? The whole nation was looking for Brian Laundrie. And then you had these different Twitters and different websites saying, oh, I had a sighting of Brian Laundrie on my you know, backyard lawn camera. 
Uh, that was a nationwide manhunt for Brian Laundrie. This was, of course, before he, he turned up, you know, having killed himself. But um, over those days, there was a, man -wide, uh, a nationwide manhunt for Mr. Laundrie. Basically, the same thing is happening to Elijah. Elijah runs for his life. And here is where I would say maybe commentaries and perhaps even sermons that tackle this chapter. Here's where a lot of folks start to get harsh on Elijah. They get harsh on him for running. They critique him. They say, oh, what a coward. You know, first, you know, in the previous chapters, you had great faith. What happened to your faith now? Or they even go further. What a hypocrite. You know, here you are, this alleged man for God, doing these great miracles, and yet something happens, a little distress, and you, you, you cut tail and you, and you run. Well, let me have, let's talk about two responses to that. The first response is, it's not just a little distress that Elijah's going through. He is being hunted for his life. Most of us have never faced distress up to that level. And I would also say, all of us have lost faith and have lost courage in much less distressful circumstances, including the writers of whichever commentaries including the, 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 whichever pastors who preached those sermons that mocked Elijah, uh, Elijah, right? All of us have experienced loss of courage and loss of faith in much less circumstances than Elijah. So who are we to talk down about him? Second, perhaps Elijah was not just running because of fear. Perhaps there was a purpose to his running. Okay, we talked about this. If you look at verses three and four, this is what the Bible says. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba. Beersheba, which is the, the, the southernmost town of Judah, which belonged to Judah. And he left his servant there. But then he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. So, so, Elijah's not just going to Beersheba to try to hide. He's going to Beersheba, and then he starts going in some direction another day. All right? If you pulled up a map and you drew a straight line, draw a straight line from Mount Carmel to Beersheba, and then you presume he's going in the same direction another day in that same direction. Draw a straight line. At the end of that line, where do you end up? you end up near the sea, near a mountain that we call Mount Sinai. You end up at Mount Sinai if you draw a straight line and you trace Elijah's journey. What was Elijah doing when he ran? Remember, this was a man of great faith. He trusted God. He relied on God. He had seen God's greatness. And so, logically, wouldn't it make sense if you are that type of man when there is distress, and when people are coming after your life, and you have no place to go, where would you go? You would go to God. And he was making his way to God, to Mount Sinai. 
So more than just a, a wimp or, or a pouty, spoiled brat, whatever, right, who was complaining with, by the, with the slightest discouragement. Elijah was trying to get to God. This is where we see God's compassion and God's strength. The problem for Elijah was God was far away. I mean, that journey from Beersheba to Sinai uh, is at least 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And I talked about this in, in a previous sermon. Uh, that Hebrew word for wilderness is desert. It's not like wilderness as in Yellowstone National Park, nice, lush greens, you know, uh, lush streams. Uh, this is desert. Um, the problem was God was far away. You know, how many of us have ever experienced that? Right, in the time of distress, in the time of discouragement, uh, seems like we can't find God. Seems like God is far away, and it's here that Elijah's faith fails. Okay, verse four. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. Also realize at this time, I mean, uh, this morning we were talking about age. At this time, Elijah's old. Okay. <laughs> He's old. He went about a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, this is, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. It is here that Elijah begins to experience the compassion of God. While human commentators and perhaps other human sermons might mock or scorn or ridicule Elijah, and I've heard that, um, ironically coming from mega church pastors with bright lights and big stadiums, mocking who've probably never been persecuted like Elijah has been persecuted, mocking Elijah, scorning him, Notice God does not do any of that. Instead, God shows understanding. He shows compassion. Look at what the Bible says in verses 5 and 6. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Uh, in my college days, I, I volunteered in, in Chinatown in Philadelphia. There's multiple bakeries in Chinatown. I loved walking in Chinatown in the morning when the bakeries just opened and when all that cake and bread, when it came, comes out fresh, love that smell. How many of you love the smell of a bakery in the morning? Now imagine it's not just a bakery, a human bakery. This was a cake baked by God. This is how God meets Elijah, not mocking, not scorning, not ridiculing, not even rebuking. He realizes the need that Elijah has at that point, which is he, he's basically about to die. He's not just complaining about dying. 
He's a day into the wilderness by himself. He's elderly. He's got 39 more days to go. He can't make it. There's no food. There's no water. So God meets his need. Gives him a cake. Gives him water. God actually does it a second time for Elijah. And then God responds to Elijah. To Elijah's complaint. This is what the Bible says in verses 11 to 12. Uh, then God said, go out and stand on the mountain. Well, first, you know, based on the, 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 the bread, the cake and the water, Elijah actually makes it that far to Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and then in verses 11 to 12, then God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And before, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And in that still, small voice, that's the voice that God decides to talk to Elijah. You know, earlier today, we read Exodus 34, happening on the same mountain. In Mount Sinai, um, or, or geologists, if you go to Mount Sinai today, the, the passage that we read in Exodus 34 says God descended on top of Sinai. And actually, in that same chapter, the Bible describes the floor becoming as, as like sapphire. Uh, it's really interesting. On top of that mountain today, there is burnt rock. There are no trees on that mountain. It's not a luscious mountain. You know, it's just a it's just a dry, arid mountain. Uh, but they think it's weird that there is burnt rock on top of that mountain. But anyway, it's the same mountain. Elijah basically experiences all of what God says about himself in Exodus thirty-four, but he experiences it with his senses, with his sight, with his hearing. That God is. Merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, right? Forgiving inequities, compassionate. Elijah experiences all of that, but through his senses, through sight and sound. There's also a great contrast. You know, here in these verses, the Bible is very clear that God was not in the wind, which broke the rocks, that God was not in the earthquake, and that God was not in the fire. But yet God spoke to Elijah in a small, still voice. Uh, those things, the wind, earthquake, and fire, actually, in other parts of Scripture, God does often appear by those manifestations, by wind, by earthquake, and fire. Usually, in other parts of Scripture, when God appears in those things, it's because of His wrath and judgment. Right. Remember the words of Psalm one through uh, Psalm one, verse four. The ungodly are like chaff, which the wind drives away. There, God talking about His judgment of the ungodly. Remember the words of Hebrews twelve. Uh, we all remember the end of Hebrews twelve. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, meaning an earthquake cannot be shaken. The comparison is with God coming to shake not just the earth, but also the heavens. Earthquake, 
shaking them in judgment. And of course, when God comes in judgment, final judgment in Revelation, He comes in fire. Right? Peter says that. The first judgment against that world was with water, but now this world is stored up for fire, for God's wrath. So God does, He can, He does appear in wind, earthquake, and fire, in judgment and wrath. I think he had reason to with Elijah here because, as Mark reminded us, when we read the Ten Commandments and we prayed concerning our sins, all of us are sinners. Despite anything that Elijah has done, he is still a sinner. Even at this point in ver uh, chapter 19, you could say Elijah was breaking some of the Ten Commandments. Was he loving God with all of his heart, strength, and soul, and might? Was he, when he was complaining about his life, perhaps was he coveting the life of the wicked, right? The, the, the words of Psalm 73, was Elijah going through the first part of Psalm 73? Was his foot slipping? And was he envious of the wicked, of the rich, of Jezebel, of Ahab? Was he coveting? So God had reason to, to appear in judgment against Elijah, and yet he chooses not to. Gave him compassion. He speaks to him in a small, still voice. God's compassion for us when we are discouraged. But then God doesn't just show Elijah his compassion. He shows Elijah his strength. There's still the matter of Elijah's main complaint, right? Elijah's repeated this several times in the passage that we read. Uh, if you look at verses 15 to 17, this is Elijah's complaint. You know, when God finally speaks to Elijah in that still small voice, then the Lord said to him, uh, you know, what are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, and Elijah basically says to him the complaint, you know, I've been very zealous for you. I've done all these things for you. Um, and yet nothing's going well. My life is under threat and now they're taking, you know, they're about to take my life. So, you know, just take my life already. Right. Look at verse 15. Look at how God responds to Elijah's complaint. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint as your prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Now, a lot of folks look at these verses and say, well, maybe God was rebuking Elijah, saying, okay, you're done. You know, I'm taking you out of your office, and now you got to go find your replacement. Okay? Uh, not quite. Because God doesn't just tell Elijah to go find Elisha. God tells Elijah, you got to go appoint two other people. Okay? And then God is very specific in verse 17 why he has to go appoint those people. 
whoever escapes the sword of the first appointee, Hazael, the next one will kill. Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, the last one, Elisha, will kill. Basically, what God is saying to Elijah, remember Elijah's main complaint. Right? They're all after me, God. Everybody's persecuting me. And I'm the only one left. Now I feel like dying. I'm, I'm done with this. God doesn't rebuke Elijah for complaining. God actually says to Elijah, I got this in my hands. Amen. I got this. Every last one, and this is no exaggeration, we'll look at the texts. Every last person, man, woman, and child, and animal, who persecuted you, Elijah, I got this. I will have vengeance. Whoever escapes the sword of one, the next one will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of the next one, Elisha will kill. Now, was God exaggerating? Let's look at what happens, okay? Many chapters later, we get to the account of Hazael. Hazael becomes, he becomes anointed by Elisha as king of Assyria. But there's this very interesting passage in 2 Kings chapter 8. When Elisha goes to meet Hazael, this is what happens. You might remember this. Then Elisha set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why is my Lord weeping? Elisha answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. Hazael was a nasty, nasty, nasty warlord. But God allows him to bring his judgment and vengeance upon Israel who was in a manhunt against Elijah you think God forgets you think God does not hold people accountable you think God just says oh well these people are persecuting Elijah I'm just gonna forget about it no God remembers and Hazael is appointed and he goes and he does these nasty things Terrible things to that northern kingdom of Israel. Jehu. Jehu's much worse, if you can imagine it. Jehu appears in the in 2 Kings chapter 9 to 10. This is what Jehu does. First, he murders Joram, the son of Ahab, the firstborn son of Ahab. Jehu murders. Then he goes to the southern kingdom, to Judah, and he murders Ahaziah who was the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, who became king over Judah. Jehu goes and murders him. Then Jehu murders Jezebel. There's that famous story of Jehu riding up to the city gate. Jezebel is pointing him out. Guards, you know, seize him. And Jehu says, if you're on my side, throw her down. And they throw her down. And then what does Jehu do? He takes his horse and he tramples her body. And then the Bible actually says there was... Dogs ate the rest of it. And there was no identifiable body parts except for some hands and some lips and, and some fingers. Right. 
That's not all. Ahab has 70 other sons. And Jehu goes and slaughters all of them. Cuts off their heads and has them brought to him. God's vengeance. You know, Elijah was long dead by that time. Right? Spirit in heaven. Um, I wonder what Elijah would have said. You know, to God avenging him. Did God leave any stone unturned? Did anybody escape the sword? You know, it's so bad that you don't have any accounts of Elisha doing that, right? Because God had basically taken care of it with Hazael and Jehu. You know, in, in this city, we have a problem with accountability. Right. I don't know if you saw the news this past week in the naval yard. There was a, a, a committee of uh, House representatives, state House representatives, Democrat and Republican. Who were. Basically calling for the removal of our district attorney. Or our you know city attorney. Uh, because of all the unsolved gun violent crimes. And basically they had they paraded. They brought up all these mothers who had lost sons and husbands and, and brothers and, and uncles and had them come up to testify. And every single one of them wept and talked about the lack of accountability for in this city when we let violent criminals go. When you don't hold wrongdoers accountable, it's the victims that suffer, right? And you feel like Nothing's getting done. There's no justice. There's no accountability. Well, that doesn't happen with God. God holds Elijah's persecutors, every last one of them, he held accountable. We read Psalm 73. Uh, the first part of the psalm, the psalmist, uh, he says his foot had almost slipped because he was looking at his side, God's side, and then he was looking at the wicked side. And he was saying, wow, the wicked got good. I started becoming envious of them. And because of that, I almost slipped. And then he also says, you know, when I was in that sort of envious moment, I was like a beast. I was ignorant like a beast. But then he realizes. He, he realizes that that was ignorance. It's much better to be with God. Amen. The second part of that psalm teaches us the correct response. Right? Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think that was a lesson that Elijah had to learn, even for this great man of God. His flesh and his strength were failing, but God is his portion forever. Why? Says in verse 27 to 28 in Psalm 73, For indeed, those who are far off from God will perish, no matter how good the wicked or the ungodly have it. In this moment, God will hold them accountable. They will perish. 
Yeah, he was on a slippery slope until he realized the end of the wicked. For indeed, those who are far off from you shall perish. But it is good for me to be on safe ground. It is good for me to draw near to God. You know, God's vengeance is a hard thing. I mean, what Hazael and Jehu did to the enemies of Elijah. You know, in, the, in, in moments when we are attacked or when we face discouragement that causes distress, when you guys, when we're out, when you're out on 69th Street, I read a prayer request of the Horizon cults and scoffers. I don't, you know, I haven't been in 69th Street for a while. But I suppose that society has become to a point where there's more. It feels like more and more of that day by day, right? Aren't there some points where you say, ah, oh, I wish I could say something back at them or, 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 or like get some kind of vengeance? Friends. Yes. But realize two things. One, God has it in his control. He holds all people, all men accountable. And then secondly, his vengeance is so much worse. Which is why we ought to do First Peter 2, right? The verses that we read in our New Testament reading. You know, the specific context there is God instructing servants to be submissive to their earthly master, not just the good ones, but especially the harsh ones. Because it, it doesn't benefit us when we are persecuted for doing bad. It's actually, it, it's a better thing for us to be persecuted and endure that when we do good. Why? Because Christ suffered this way for us. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And then God doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just tell us, look. You know, we just got to eternally turn the other cheek and love our enemies, right? Why? Why was Christ able to not revile in return? Why was he able to suffer and not threaten? The second part of verse 23, because he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. And he knows what type of judgment faces all of those other people. You commit. You don't just turn the other cheek. For the sake of turning the other cheek. You don't just bear it and endure and grind your teeth and bear it. Just for the sake of doing that. You bear, you endure. Because you commit them into the hands of God. And then you do a funny thing. You realize how harsh they have it coming. How pitiful their situation actually is. And then you do what actually Jesus tells us to do, right? Jesus says in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray, pray, yes, to those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why pray? Because God is going to hold them accountable and that vengeance is harsh. And a final reminder to Elijah that God got it, that God has it all in his hands. God reminds Elijah 
The third person you are going to anoint is Elisha. Now, names in the Bible have meaning. Elisha means God is my salvation. Eli is that word for God. Shua is the word for salvation. Elishua or Elisha is the phrase for God is my salvation. God was reminding Elijah, you're not on your own. Your salvation is not in your hands. I am your salvation. You know, I give you compassion, but it doesn't mean I'm a weak God. I'm a God of strength. And all that persecution that you are facing, all of that discouragement that has brought you to your wit's end, I've got it under control and I will hold them accountable. I am your salvation. You know, friends, I suppose you've gone through similar things, maybe not to the extent that Elijah has, but you've certainly gone through discouragement, right? Maybe per uh, perhaps feeling the same sort of walls closing in in this area. More and more scoffers, more and less and less people willing to, to listen and hear. And yet God still preserves his several thousand, right? I saw that list of, of people that are seekers, right? But yet you do face discouragement. On 69th Street, maybe in the in a lesser extent, but similarly as Elijah. Remember God's compassion. And remember God's strength. And then because of that, then that enables you to endure, that enables you to pray, as Jesus says, for those who persecute you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for um, this passage where uh, through the life of one of the great prophets, perhaps the, the, the second greatest prophet next to Jesus, um, but yet through his frailty and through his weakness, Lord, uh, you teach us about yourself, about how you are understanding and compassionate to our weakness but also about your strength, how you have everything under control and how we can submit everything to you. Father, help us to do exactly what Jesus told us to do, which was to, to, to love our enemies and in fact to pray for them, to endure persecution and discouragement as we entrust ourselves to you who judges righteously. Give us the grace to do that each day, especially as this church uh, engages, uh, you know, a lot. We're, this is the front lines, Lord. 69th Street, Christ Church out here. These are the front lines. Give this church grace. Help us uh, as we engage each day in the gospel ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.